Hey, good morning, everybody. Excellent. Carl Hurley is a country comedian known as a humorist, and uh, he, he said he was uh, speaking one time, a fellow, uh, fellow in the back row stood up and said, I can't hear you. And a fellow on the front row said, I can hear him. I'll trade seats with you. I hope that's not our experience today. I want to share with you and have a little fun with you today with a passage of Scripture from 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning with verse 8. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies, so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. Friends, I've heard it said that some of the most important things in life turn on tiny hinges. That is what may seem even inconsequential can have an effect. I I think there's uh, some scientific laws. It's called the butterfly effect. That when the butterfly flaps its wing in Japan, it makes a difference in what's going on in Spain. We live our lives not having an awareness of just how important what we do, what we say, can be. There was an interesting radio broadcaster from many years ago now. Some of you are old enough to recognize the name Paul Harvey. If you do recognize the name, lift your hand. For the rest of you, Google it. Google it. You can find it. He had this unique way of speaking. He had a particular and peculiar cadence of his voice. He had this daily radio program called The Rest of the Story, in which he would tell a story that seemed to be fairly ordinary and just mundane, etc., and then all at once the story would have a twist, there would be a big reveal, and he would end the broadcast by saying, and now you know, then he would pause. That pause was so long you could go out and plant a field of corn before he said the next word. And now you know the rest of the story. Well, we had a bishop, Bishop Ernest Fitzgerald, from our annual conference. He died a few years ago. He used to write a column for what was then Eastern Airline. It was put, these columns were put into a book called Keeping Pace. He told a lot of Paul Harvey-esque stories. One of those stories was about a young man in the early years of the last centuries. This young man was a foreigner who was walking down the streets of New York City. He was lost in his thoughts, not paying much attention to anything going on. He reached a busy intersection, not seeing that the light had turned, and he stepped out into incoming traffic. There just happened to be a cab driver between fares leaning on the hood of his cab who saw what was happening. He made a decision and instinctively just reached out and grabbed the guy and pulled him to safety. 
Paul Harvey goes on to say, nobody remembers the name of that New York City cab driver, but everybody remembers the name of that young man from England who led England through its most challenging times of World War II, pleading with his nation to never, never, never give up, who exercised authority across millions of people trying to keep them safe and trying to keep them out of the grip of the Nazis. That man was Winston Churchill. But years before, the life of Winston Churchill was in the hands of an unknown stranger. Little things can make a powerful difference. The writer of 1 Peter, which we believe was Peter, the apostle of Jesus, the disciple of Jesus, is writing to a group of Christians who have been dispersed over five provinces in Asia Minor. He is writing to encourage them because they too, like many Christians, are undergoing intense persecution. Now, one of the things that happens to us human beings is this natural tendency when there is great uncertainty, unpredictability in life, we tend to close ranks. We are not bold. We tend to just cross our arms, hunker down. And yet, Peter says, this is not the time to do that. If anything, this is the time for our story, our story to be proclaimed even more boldly. And so he comes up with a plan. You remember last week we talked about how important it is to put a plan in place and then to work our plan because without it, our good intentions remain only that and unfulfilled. He says to them in the opening chapter of 1 Peter, Remember the gift God has given. It is the gift of Jesus Christ. That gift that God has given even though we were undeserving. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to say, Remember now you are not as you once were. You are not just an isolated individual. You are a part of a royal priesthood. You are part of a community with a unique purpose and a unique empowerment. And you are called to reveal through your story the story of Christ within you and what Christ wants to do for those beyond you. Then he gets eminently practical over in chapter 4. It says, here's how you need to do it. Above all, above all, love each other deeply because love covers, forgives a multitude of sins. What, what was it John 3.16 said? For God so loved, great love. For God so loved, God gave. Love results in giving. God so loved the world, he gave. Now, he says, love each other deeply because it covers a multitude of sin. And Peter is writing this, so Peter, of all people, knows this is not just conceptual. He knows it personally. Not only was he there in the time of Jesus being arrested and beaten and crucified and buried and then the joy of resurrection, he also knows it personally because of his own failure. 
You remember when Jesus was on trial for his life, Peter was warming himself in the courtyard while Jesus was just inside with his accusers. Peter was accosted by a servant. And the servant said, yeah, 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 you're one of them. You're, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And Peter said, no, you're, you're mistaken. He was accosted again and again. He says, no, I am not his disciple. And a third time he is confronted and he says vehemently, I am not one of his. Just as Jesus predicted he would. And he hears the rooster crow, as Jesus said. His denials are just another form of betrayal. Peter knew about the resurrection. He had been with Jesus after the resurrection. But I wonder if he was still feeling lingering regrets and tinges of guilt over what he had done or failed to do. I think one of the greatest tools the enemy has in our forward spiritual progress is regret, is guilt. Christ offers us new life, but the evil one whispers, who are you to think life can be any different? Who are you to think you could recover from that mistake? Nobody's going to give you another opportunity. And yet, there in the Gospel of John, we have the occasion where Peter and the others in John chapter 21 have gone out one night fishing. They're expert fishermen. I mean, they could win all the bass tournaments wherever you need to go, but they didn't have a single thing in their nets. And there is a figure on the beach some distance away that calls out to them and says, Friends, have you caught any fish? Well, that's insult to injury. Well, no, but they didn't blame it on the weather or anything. No, we hadn't caught any fish. And the the man says, cast your net on the other side. You tried it your way, now do it at my direction. So they cast it over, and suddenly the nets are filled with an overflowing catch. And Jesus recognizes that the man on the beach is Jesus. He leaves the others with the work of pulling in the nets. He jumps ship, he jumps ships, and he makes his way to Jesus. Now, I know that Peter... Peter cared deeply about Jesus, but I have to wonder if part of his motivation is he's so desperate, he's so desperate to know of Jesus' approval, to know that he still has a place in the life of Jesus and the work of Jesus. Well, by the time the disciples get the fish all there, Jesus already has breakfast prepared for them, fish on the grill. I don't know where he got them, but he got them. He and Peter have been in conversation, but then Jesus has waited for the moment when everybody else is around. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter is quick to respond, well, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I absolutely love you. Then feed my lambs. Now, he's saying this in front of the other disciples. They know what Peter's done. They know how Peter failed. A second time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then tend my sheep. 
quickly on the heels of that affirmation comes the question the third time. Peter, do you love me? I don't know about you, but had that been put to me, having done what Peter's done, would have been crushing. Jesus, I've told you, I've told you, I've told you. But he knows, he recognizes three times he failed, three opportunities he's had, three times he failed. And Jesus says the third time, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Great love covers, forgives a multitude of sins. He gives Peter an opportunity to have his place reclaimed, to have the second chance. So why in the world is Peter, out of this personal experience, saying to those that he's writing to, love deeply, love deeply, for love covers a multitude of sin because he knows our human nature. He knows that sooner or later we're going to be disappointed by other people. There will be people who fail us. There will be people who perhaps even in our perspective betray us and whom we will betray and fail. It is the love that we have that is foundational to our faith and to our life as we move toward healing and wholeness in Christ. But it also says to us that great love exists even when disappointment cannot be overcome. It tells us that love can exist even when the gulf of rupture in the relationship has been too great. You remember Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament. Jacob and Esau were brothers, but Jacob treated his brother Esau unfairly and stole the birthright that should have gone to Esau. There was enmity so great that Jacob had to flee. Years later, years later, God orchestrated, God orchestrated a reconnection, a reunion, a reconciliation. But even though the enmity between them was washed away. They knew that their paths needed to go a separate direction. And so they blessed each other and they found the way to a different future. So it is in our life as Christians, not motivated by people's lacks lack or their wrongness motivated by our love of them even if our paths cannot always continue we bless them when we can where we can with forgiveness and always hope toward a greater future it's out of that love that we are told then in verse 9 to offer hospitality to one another I love that offer hospitality to one another but then he says without grumbling why does he say that without grumbling? I don't know about you, but sometimes people take so much out of me, it just takes the edge off my good humor. Is an amen in the house? Amen. amen in the house, yeah. Offer hospitality without grumbling. You see, the truth is, 
by our nature, by our nature, we human beings are more about rights and entitlement. Rights and entitlement. Now, I'm not talking about issues of justice because we want justice to be a value that is a part of every person's life journey. But left to our own devices, we are pretty much self-serving. We want what we want when we want it. We're quick to be offended when we're not getting what we think. We are so aware, we are so aware of this lack of gratitude that we recognize in our children that we need to teach it, that we need to teach it. And so when somebody does something nice or generous for our children, we kind of say quietly to them, what do you say? What do you say? And the correct response is, class, thank you. I love the story of the preschooler who went to the supermarket with his mom. They're going down the aisles. He's being so helpful. He's, he's getting stuff his mom didn't even know they wanted and putting it in the basket left and right. He's just having the best time. And they turn the corner, and there's a supermarket worker building this huge display of navel oranges. Oh, it is impressive. It's a pyramid. It's a pyramid. I don't know why they put those things in pyramid. That's disaster waiting to happen. He's building this pyramid of big, bright, orange, juicy-looking navel oranges, and this kid is just mesmerized. The worker catches the gaze of this little one, and he, he knows. And so he reaches up to the top and gets one of those navel oranges, and he hands it to the kid. And he says, here, I want you to have this. And he says to the mom, don't worry, I'll, I'll pay for it. I just want him to have it. Well, she bends down and whispers in his ear, what do you say, son? What do you say? He looks at the orange, and then he says, peel it. <laughs> Isn't that just like us? Offer hospitality without grumbling because you see when we offer hospitality what we're really doing is simply offering what we have to share simply offering what we have to share verse 10 each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms you see the Bible is very clear of this over over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12 and following Paul writes about the variety of spiritual gifts. There are many spiritual gifts, all given for the benefit of the body. Not everybody has the same gifts. Some people have more than one. Some people are just, it seems like, just have multiple, multiple gifts. But every person, it seems, every person, it seems, is guaranteed at least one. And Paul says... Those are given to us for the benefit of the whole. So it strengthens the body, encourages the body, makes life possible within the body so the body is better able to serve not simply those within it but those beyond it that God wants us to embrace. Just recently, oh, it was this past week, the new James Webb Telescope put out some new pictures of this they call it the cosmic nursery. You, you see these pillars of, 
of stardust out there. And it's in incredible detail, and it, it speaks to me of the incredible vastness of creation, the incredible beauty of vacation. Of, yeah, vacations are good too. The, the, the beauty of, of all that God has created. But those things are spectacular. However, astrophysicists tell us that all we can see is not all that makes up the vast universe. There is something called dark matter, not dark as in sinister, dark as in visible. And though it cannot be seen, because it is present and it does what only it can do, the universe exists as it exists. Without it, the universe could not be as it is. So it is with spiritual gifts. Sometimes we, we see somebody that's one of these gifted people. They're just disgusting. They're so talented and gifted. Oh, my goodness. And the spotlight's on them, and, and we think we don't have much to offer. Or maybe we're a little envious sometimes. But Paul says every gift is important. Every gift is needed, whether it's highly visible or whether it seems to be exercised in the quietness and the invisible realm. And that's why 1 Peter says, use it as a means of God's grace. And as you use it, know the Spirit gave it and the Spirit will empower. If the Spirit gives it, and we use it with the Spirit's empowerment, then God will be praised because Jesus will be revealed. I know this business guy, he's really, he's really successful. Just amazing. Many years ago now, he got connected with Mother Teresa over in India. Now, you and I know that she's passed from this earthly scene some years ago. But he got into connection with her. I'm sure he made wonderful contributions to support her ministry. He was invited to go to visit her in India, and he accepted. Now, I happen to know this guy, and he's on the plane flight over to India, and he's sitting there thinking thoughts that I do not think. He's thinking thoughts about how can I serve when I get there. How can I just be available for whatever is needed? If I had been in his position with his resources, with his expertise and his experiences, I'd probably be sitting on that plane and I'd be thinking, well, I'm probably going to sit with Mother Teresa at the highest level of decision-making. But with the expertise that I bring, I can help them find efficiencies. I can up their effectiveness. I can help them change their funding structure so they have more resources to use. But this guy didn't think that way. And when he arrived, after he adjusted a bit to the time change, he asked Mother Teresa what she wanted him to do. And she said, would you wash the blankets? The blankets were from the beds of the sick and the dying. He did not have direct contact with the sick and dying. He perhaps caught a glimpse as he passed the wards on his way down to the laundry. No air conditioning, hot, humid, day after day, washing the soiled blankets 
of the dying and the ill. After a few days, the end was in sight for his visit. And he simply raised the question that he did every day with Mother Teresa, what would you like me to do today? And she said, today, I want you to shave this man. Pointing to a man obviously gravely ill, unkept, on his blanket, soon to be soiled. And so this businessman went over. He had the things he needed to shave him. But this man's of different culture. He's of a different language. They had absolutely nothing in common. And the businessman was trying to figure out, how do I communicate? How, how do I get him so that I can shave him? And I, won't, I don't want to cut him with a straight razor. My goodness. And so he came up with a plan of just looking into the man's eyes and making faces. Now, ladies, you don't perhaps pay any attention to this, but when guys shave, we have to make faces in the mirror to get to all the nooks and crannies that we need to get to. And so he began looking into the eyes of this ill man, and he turned his head and got the man to turn his head so he could shave him a little bit there. And then he turned his head the other way. And the guy turned his head and he shaved him that way. And then he kind of pooched his lips. Get him underneath there. And it must have been hilarious to watch. But during that time, as the businessman looked into the eyes of this human being, He said, I remembered when Jesus said, when you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. And he said, Jesus was made known to me. Not all of us are going to go to India to work with the sick and dying. So who are the least of these among us? The truth is, they are the people that God brings across our path. The least of these may be that person that's hurting, that person that's feeling hopeless, that person who materially is poor, that person who needs someone to listen, that person who needs someone to let them know they're still valuable. It may be a child with a deep loss and a wondering if they have any place in this world. You see, I think we are called to live with our eyes open, with our ears tuned, that we might even hear a tear coming down the cheek of a person God calls us to bless. Truth is, friends, you and I, you and I have our story from our birthing cry to our last breath. We write our story. And I pray that my story and yours, as it is experienced by those God gives us in this life journey, will come to know the rest of the story in us and through us because of Jesus. I believe there is no greater way to live, no more blessed way to live, 
no more potent way to experience the abundant life that Jesus promised than to offer ourselves as he did as servant. Would you pray with me? Oh God, it's never convenient, often not easy. Yes, it does take something from us and cost us something. But oh, the blessing and benefit that it may bring, even the seemingly inconsequential things to us, may make a tremendous impact in the lives of those you give us to serve. Let us never underestimate what we might do or our capacity to do it as we share our resources, as we share our gifts, as we share our love that covers a multitude of sins, our own as well as others. Amen.